Please support the Climate Change and Happiness podcast. See the donate page at climatechangeandhappiness.com. The climate is changing at an accelerating pace. Thousands of residents and tourists have been evacuated from the region. No one country can solve this problem. There's really one key message that emerges from this report. We are out of time. Welcome to Climate Change and Happiness, an international podcast that explores the personal side of climate change, your feelings, what the crisis means to you, and how to cope and thrive. And now, your hosts, Thomas Doherty and Panu Pikala. Hello, I'm Thomas Doherty. And I am Panu Pikala. And welcome to Climate Change and Happiness, our podcast. This is a show for people around the globe who are thinking and feeling deeply about climate change, the personal side of climate change, their emotional responses. And uh, today we are um, going to talk about climate emotions in our family, a really juicy topic. Uh, we've been thinking about couples, relationships, and significant others. And today we're going to talk about family. So we're going to invite you listeners to think about your family, wherever you live in the world, and your family relationships. Um, Panu... You know, we've been talking about this, and you're, of course, in a family as well, and uh, have the Finnish context. But what, what, what are the kind of things that come up for you around climate, emotions, and family? Mm. Yeah, this is one great example of how climate change is having so many different kinds of impacts. So not just the physical, but also to the human impacts and in this case impacts on human relations and dynamics including family dynamics so no matter what kind of family you are in and people can have wide di- different kinds of families here and extended families in a growing manner climate change is affecting those dynamics and that's what we really want to mm. discuss and explore t- today in Finland I my workshops often include young people and among them one big issue is generational uh, differences in climate opinion and the emotional impacts of those differences which sometimes can be disputes or even quite heated arguments or lead into complicated dynamics like being silent about certain matters and doing identity related things and many of these dynamics are quite common in families in relation to a lot of topics or even just the basic human relations but now they have this extra climate dimension or environmental dimension and I'm also interested about which is sort of primary in in various cases. Mm. Sometimes there can be differences already before and then the climate matters become entangled in that and sometimes the other way around. But uh, I suspect, Thomas, that this is something that comes up uh, a lot in, in, your, in your work and of course we have our daily lives also. Yeah. Yeah, well I think this this having two levels, you know, like binocular vision, like we've talked about in the past, like we, we see the climate change impacts in the family, but we also see the existing family roles and relationships. Um, 
it reminds me of this 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 uh, concept of issues and issues that I talk about. Sometimes we have mm. our capital I big issues we want to work on in the world, social justice and climate change and our own health and prosperity. Um, but then we have our personal our personal issues, our personal baggage, our losses, our our idiosyncrasies, our personality styles, our traumas, our neuroses, you know, our limitations that we're always trying to grow past. Um, and uh, kind of things people talk about in therapy. And, um, but families, of course, have issues and issues too. They have whatever the big, the big thing they're talking about, but then you can't get away from all the little family relationships and resentments, both, well, both positive things. Let's talk about the positive. Some families really get along well together and support each other. And there's a, there's a lineage and a history and mentoring and support. Uh, but then, you know, families have their, their schisms you know, their, their resentments, their difficulties communicating. And so we have issues and we have issues and issues. Like I think you've talked about mm -hmm. children and siblings sometimes get stuck in roles like the good child and the bad child or the middle child. Mm -hmm. and, and then that comes out with, that can come out. Do you see that coming out with climate behaviors and, and beliefs? Um, I have seen instances of it and heard people talk about it and of course this you know good child bad child dynamic can then be linked to other relations like good son-in-law and bad son-in-law mm. or good daughter-in-law and bad daughter-in-law in, in, in so there may be all kinds of versions of this and many factors come into play and in this inter generational things also in finland a lot of the grandparent generation people were born in the countryside or may still have closer ties than the youngest generations so some of this you know valuing and sometimes splitting can be then related to for example the countryside city splits mm. which is a common feature in environmental discourses and it shouldn't be over dramatized either it's one a great example where we need critical analysis of the discourses around environmentalism. It's not just cities against countryside, that's way too simple, but that, that persists and sometimes can also be a, be, be a factor affecting relations. Yeah, totally. And so listeners, I want to get some traction with you all. Just listening a little deeply, think about your own family. You're, you, you all have families and really think about the actual people in the families, your siblings, if you have siblings, brothers or sisters, your parents, your grandparents, your children. So I know in the US, an urban-rural split or an urban-suburban-rural uh, split can be common. Obviously, there's some really toxic uh, polarization things happening in the, in the US right now politically. But we, you, I really want you, know, you all listeners to think about your own, really your own selves and your relationships. Um, because yeah, some families value tradition and in certain families it's, it's, it's right to respect the elders. And we do want to look at the elders for their wisdom. But if elders are, are, are staying in a kind of fossil fuel dominated worldview and young people are moving to a different worldview, that, that's a reasonable place of difference to talk about. And of course, if we look across culturally around the world, obviously there's different family values regarding 
you know, collective family and respect for the family versus, you know, some, some cultures, it's not okay to question your parents or question your elders. So it does bring a, a lot uh, around the world. And so it's just, I want, you know, the listeners to, to think about this. You know, where I go with a lot of this is back to my idea of environmental identity. And we have this identity about ourselves in relation to nature and the natural world. And we can learn about this and see our own timeline of our life and where we grew up and our relationships and what we've learned and what we've seen. And we have our values and we want to stand up for these values and really grow this identity. It's positive. It can be a positive identity. But the, the really neat, a neat thing is to, and you know, listeners, you can think about this too. Now you have your environmental identity, your values, your beliefs, your sense of yourself that's growing and changing. But now step back and think about a family tree that you're in, this family tree with your parents and your siblings and your children. Each person on the family tree has an environmental identity also and a timeline and a set of experiences and a set of education and, and a worldview. Your mother has an environmental identity, your father, your grandmother, your grandfather, your great-grandfather, your great-grandmother, your siblings, your, your daughter, your son. It is I find it really f fascinating to sort of think about the other identities that my family members have. And then I start to understand, oh, I can see, I can see why they feel that way. I've seen this my own family. I've seen it with students that I've worked with when they've kind of learned things. And so there's all, it's really interesting to step back a little bit and think about the environmental identity of all these members. Mm. Thanks, Thomas. I think that's very, very helpful. And in all these communication situations, uh, it would be really great if we could at least sometimes approach them with compassion both towards the other and ourselves and at least sometimes be able to take a step back and try to look at the situation from a wider lens a bit like this binocular vision vision thing i've been applying to several several things and which just links to Wilfried beyond beyond work work also for example if we have teenagers who are very progressive in climate politics and we have grandparents who feel hesi hesitation and feel all kinds of difficulty because they have lived their lives according to a different kind of consciousness and val values and of course there have been choices along the way that that doesn't mean that uh, those who are now old wouldn't have any responsibility but i still think that we need contextual analysis mm -hmm. that it was different to make those decisions in the 60s or yeah. even the uh, 70s so trying to think about the situation also from the point of view of the other person that what what are general things going on in, in people of that age in their minds mm -hmm. and what are some of the needs one could evoke the psychological frame of developmental tasks and needs here mm. so uh, for example older people desiring re respect mm -hmm. and wanting to leave a positive legacy mm. and if they feel that there is no no way to do that of course they will feel very threatened yeah. and may may react more aggressively than they would like to for example in these climate con conversations so so I think there's plenty in these situations going on. Yeah, and, and, and nowhere is that more stark than in 
young adults' decisions about having children. We've talked about mm. this in our podcast, with in our episodes with, with Britt Ray and Jade Sasser. That's where this comes out often for families is when uh, the elder, the prospective grandparent, who's always, again, the, this is the whole idea of lost possible self that comes into play here. I've I've always, I would always, as a parent, and my my children grow up. Well, I, I will assume somehow I will be a grandparent. It, I just, it's just what mm. I've always thought about myself. And then suddenly, I hear my my children saying they might not want to have children. It can be a huge mm. rite of passage and really an issue for the mm. family to mm. work through. And so this is this is a real a salient kind of example of that. Um, but again, it's in small ways too. Classic family therapy talks about the family roles of kids. There's the the hero child that really embodies the family's values and future, and everybody loves that child. And then there's the the scapegoat child that doesn't the black sheep that doesn't necessarily go along with the family. And those that's like that's still true in families. And listeners, you can think about how that feels for you. In some families, the hero is the eco child that's wanting to do these sustainability things. Uh, but in some families, the, the the eco sustainable you know child could be the scapegoat, could be the black sheep. That's that issues and issues thing. Um, so just there's no easy answer for this, but it's just helpful to see it to see it recognized and to understand. Uh, I know personally, I've tread both uh, as the oldest son in my family. I've when I was younger, I was the hero child because I did well in school and I went to college and I'm the first person in my family to go to college. And, and, uh, but when I did into a traditional life path and went into all the different strange and funny things that I've done in my life, um, then I really flirted with the black sheep, you know, uh, persona also. Mm. And the, the sad part is that my parents never fully understood some of this work um, that I do. They're both, they're both deceased now. But um, I can remember my father, who was quite conservative, working class, Buffalo, New York person, not at all an environmentalist in any way. But I can remember when he started to talk about climate change and the weather in Buffalo and, and my surprise when he said, oh yeah, the weather, the winter, you know, it's that climate change stuff. And I was like, really? Hmm. Okay. <laughs> so, you know, seeing him see that you know see practically understand that so people do also evolve and change that's the other thing i have had so many times work with students in college age mm -hmm. or graduate students and they'll be different than their family i'm thinking of an asian student who was doing environmental work and her parents were much more of the american dream like get a house get a car establish yourself because they were immigrants and but when she started doing her work, her, her mother would send her news articles and sort of want to mm -hmm. want to support. Mm -hmm. I have a therapist I was working with just recently who was, I hadn't thought about it, but it's really perfect example because she is in the US and in Italy and she wanted to do work in Italy, but her family is much more upper, upper middle class, Milan, Italian family, you know, status and fashion and things. And she was feeling very, um, risky about putting herself out there doing ecological work um but when she posted recently on her linkedin uh professional page the first the first two people to congratulate her were her father and a relative who she was concerned would judge her so she was very relieved so you never know you never know there are positive stories here as well mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I think that's very rich. Thanks for share, sharing that, Thomas, and totally resonating with these family therapy concepts, which are not so so familiar for me because I'm no expert in family family ter- therapy. Um, but I have my own experiences and observations of how people may may change when some people follow an unordinary path. And they may not say it directly, but it goes back partly to what you called with the term love language in an earlier mm-hmm. episode we did around couples. So they may show their appreciation in, in some other, other way. And especially if we can avoid total confrontations around environmental and climate issues and, you know, total commitment to, for example, opposing identities, then there is more space over the years for uh, attitudes to, to change and also people to mani- manifest things like you notice that well I, I never said I opposed, opposed this totally and actually mm-hmm. I have been sort of sort of secretly in for this for a long time and regardless of whether that is completely true or not I think it's still great if people are able to change and, and adapt and that's something very very valuable mm-hmm. What I have been working lately in my academic work is theories of grief and bereavement Mm. applied to ecological grief. And I don't want to go too deeply into that now. That's a topic for another episode. But the basic distinction in grief theory between tangible loss and intangible loss Mm. can be helpful here because we can easily see some losses for example something or somebody is not there anymore but then there is intangible loss which is much easily left unnoticed or even disenfranchised because we can't see it with our eyes or even notice it with our senses and this sort of loss of the role of grandparenthood for example uh, is a prominent example of intangible loss and which can also continue over over time. So sometimes in our families we have these intangible losses and people would of course benefit from having social support for that and that may be tricky, especially if we never talk about climate grief and sadness and different kinds of related losses. Yeah, that's a great takeaway, Panu. So listeners, you can think about this. There's tangible and intangible losses. So there's losses we can see, they're quite concrete, and there are ones that are that are a little more, um, I don't know what the word would be for intangible, but they're, they're harder to pin down because they're, they're, they're an absence, of, they're an absence mm-hmm. of something, like potentially having grand, not having grandchildren that you thought. But yeah, being able to talk about these things, it, 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 there's no easy answers. I, we have to say that climate, that's why, the, that's the problem comes It poses these really stark dilemmas mm-hmm. for us. Um, and it does affect our family. But I want to also do another thing. You know, we've talked about this with our recent conversation with uh, Janet Lewis. Um, we talked about this idea of a dialectic where you have a certain idea about the world and you say, well, what about the opposite idea as well? And how do we kind of look between these two? Because there's a stereotype that um, young people are, are more concerned about climate change than elders right and that we hear that again and again and that is true but it isn't really as true as we would think um because i'm looking at the yale climate program's recent six americas research so they've studied people's environmental identity and their beliefs about climate change around the world 
And, you know, we have to be careful when we look at the news and we look at research. And, and yes, statistically, in the U.S., Gen Z and millennials uh, are more likely to be alarmed or concerned about climate change than baby boomers or older generations. But, but it isn't as different as you would think. You know, yes, eleven um, percent of the baby boomers and you know older generations are are dismissive of climate change, um, and eleven percent of Gen X are, but seven percent of millennials are also dismissive of climate change. And yes, 30% of Gen Z and millennials are alarmed, you know, in the U.S. population as based on this research. But 26% of Gen Z and 25% of the other generations as well. So there's a huge swath. The actual uh, patterns hold through for all the generations. Most of the the, gen, the baby boom and, and, and um, mm-hmm. in the U.S., the baby boom and other generations, the large, you know, they are either um, concerned or alarmed. So the the group of concerned and alarmed, the and maybe we'll put this figure in our show notes. They're mm-hmm. they're they're quite similar. So yes, yeah, statistically, there's slightly more. But if we then think in that black and white, we put these people into two categories. But the reality is, when we look across all the generations, most people in the U.S. are concerned or alarmed, and only a small percentage relatively are doubtful or dismissive across all the generations and including again including some very young there's a group of young people that are doubtful and dismissive as well mm-hmm. so people are are far more together than they they realize mm-hmm. yeah yeah i think that's a very important point and we've done sometimes done public writing on the topic in Finland together with colleagues because there is the danger in, for example, climate anxiety discourses that people start to link it only with young people. And that's really not true. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We have to remember that in every age group, we have people who are very, very worried. And as you say, Thomas, people who uh, for a reason or another are not so, not so w- worried. And the social dynamics can then make it actually very difficult, for example, for older people who feel a lot of climate anxiety. Because if that's not commonly talked about, uh, inter-age group and inter-social settings, and if we have a public discourse which links climate anxiety with young people, they may feel very isolated. The Finnish broadcasting company Yle actually did a survey about this one year ago, targeting uh, older people, and the results and stories were very striking. They interviewed me also for the for the story and exactly these dynamics which I mentioned came came up that somebody uh, about 60 years old had talked about climate anxiety and others had said to her that you know that's a sort of disease for children and young people not for hmm. you hmm. and this word disease doesn't translate well and I don't mean that climate anxiety is a disease but anyway you can hear all kinds of opinions yeah. around so so just wanting to validate th- that also that it may sometimes be quite tricky for older people who have these emotions yeah so yeah so you can imagine yeah some some elder having another elder say well that's a young person's problem you know you have other things to work on uh but yeah it's it is we're more together than we think and often when you give people more accurate information and more perspective then they then bring that information into their life right 
So anyway, point point being is that, um, and among our listeners, obviously, we have a you know select group of of highly uh, you know conscientious listeners who are interested in climate issues and emotions. But I know our listeners. Um, there are many Gen X and baby boom and, and older generation listeners that we have, and I know they're they're mm. they're saying, hey, don't 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 lump me into this mm-hmm. stereotype, mm-hmm. Um, and so. But something you said just now about how that that story, that media story that only young people are concerned and the others not, it makes young people feel lonely and unsupported and it builds this illusion in young people that there's no one out there. It is it is um, dangerous actually for young people because they don't they haven't lived enough in the world mm-hmm. yet to know that they're not true. Um, so we want to be careful about that. That this is another reason why the media isn't always our friend because they tend to simplify things and make them into simple black and white scenarios, and they they're not. So the message for for young people that are listening is that um, no people believe much like you do across the spectrums, and I can guarantee that there are many many passionate elders that have been working on this issue for years and years and years. Yeah, yeah, and and one one practical thing that one may try to do is to ask about what were the weather conditions, Grandpa, when you were young, mm-hmm. or what kind of animals, for example, birds were around Grandmother in in the days of your youth, for example. So this is something which some climate communication experts have been recommending that not starting the conversation with keywords just like climate anxiety, but instead asking per about personal histories and disconnects with the environmental identity uh, dynamic also. And then people may tell surprising things and it often becomes very clear that they have noticed many kinds of changes over the years. People are usually not ignorant to this, but they may have uh, difficulties in talking with climate political terms, for example, but going to the actual experiences and often there is some feelings of ecological loss and ecological hope there that may be one way to get forward in some of these intergenerational conversations. Don't know what you think of that, Thomas, yourself. No, I think it's a I think it's a beautiful strategy, and I've used it myself because I like talking with elders about all kinds of things, mm. and I value my my elder relatives a great deal uh, for that. And you know, really, what what's happening, Panu, is when you ask someone that question, what you're saying in the subtext is, I care about you, and I care about your mm. life, and mm. I care about your opinions, and I I value your experience and your history, and so that of course plays into this idea of respecting elders yeah so being curious now there's a slight chance that will backfire if you if you connect with a with a strident climate denier because then they'll use this as an example Mm. to to lecture you about how weather used to be different but that's that's rare most of the time if someone's genuine they'll just talk about the weather like my example with my father like they would tell you how winters were in buffalo new york and and people collectively know that the temperatures have changed and the lake the lake temperature um, used to be different. The weather patterns were different. Um, the lake would freeze more, and you could um, across the northern northern U.S. People would the lakes would freeze. People could ice skate. They could go ice fishing, um, and now that's all changing. 
and the warmer warmer lakes um, are more likely to pick up snow and create more lake effect snow. And they every people know that they know that kind of thing. And that's of course the, true all over the world in every ecosystem, from the poles to the equator. People know that, and it's a thing. It's a thing to talk about. And I I've often used that as a technique um, with my elders even about anything, mm. um, talking about what was music, what music did you listen to? What movies did you like? What kind of, mm. what, where did you live? You know, uh, but yes, what was the weather like? You know, um, keeping in mind that the environmental um, revolution, so to speak, in terms of environmentalism really didn't become, you know, largely popular until after Earth Day, you know, in the, in the early 1970s. So there's a, there's a swath of people mm. that grew up pre-Earth Day where they weren't necessarily clued into these ideas. So mm. young people forget because they've always lived in, with this from birth. But um, older mm. people can go back to a before time, you know, before time, before this was an issue. So it is, the key is again, I, I love you. I care about you. This is valuable for me. This is why I'm living my life in this way. Uh, but I still love and care about you too, even, even if you don't agree with me. You know, and that's mm. a that's a way to move forward in, in these things. It's easier said than done, obviously. And I've I've been in different places with it personally, uh myself. Yeah, totally resonating with that. And I don't want to give any impression of bright siding here either. Mm -hmm. uh, these conversations can be very very difficult. But if people can include that kind of emotional communication, you mentioned Thomas either coming in this case from the grandparents to the grandchildren and the other way around and uh, that is very important in the years to come and we will need these basic human re relations uh, and I, I i think that people shouldn't bra break them o o over the difficulties if if only possi po possible so i really think we need these messages of this respect and care mm. from various family members yeah that's a that's a good uh that's a good tone to end our discussion on so listeners we've talked a bit about families and really take take away for you is think about your own family and your role in the family and having compassion for yourself whether you're the good child or the scapegoat or the black sheep uh or the grandparent or the or the or the grandchild um we have our big issues and we have our little issues and we have all our we all have an environmental identity so we're going to keep talking about that and pano and i are both parents and, and living this out as well um in various ways. Um, so good luck to you all listeners. And Panu, you have a good rest of your evening. Take care of yourself. Take care, everyone. Thanks, Thomas. The Climate Change and Happiness podcast is a self-funded volunteer effort. Please support us so we can keep bringing you messages of coping and thriving. See the donate page at climatechangeandhappiness.com.